Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. One of our most visited subjects in this ministry is prayer. One of the reasons for that is because we all, myself included, need a little help. Because we very often struggle with maintaining a good, quote, prayer habit. It's a very difficult thing to master. We want to pray. We know the peace that it gives us. We even know that it's something that God expects from us, and yet prayer doesn't seem to be something we have any consistency with. Is there something wrong with us? Is it possible that we aren't approaching prayer properly? Perhaps we have an incomplete view of what prayer actually is. That's why we go over it so much in this ministry. Today, we're going to continue to try to shine a little more light on this precious blessing we call prayer. Now, just a moment ago to open this lesson, I partially quoted the first verse of chapter 18 of the Gospel of Luke. It's actually an introduction to a very interesting parable. You'll see that when we read the whole thing. Luke 18, 1, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, the parable that follows is one of the most debated sections of the Gospels. And by the way, is that sometimes bothers people, that there are things in Scripture that, well, get debated. They think, well, it should be, everyone should agree on everything. I agree, by the way, that everyone should agree. But we're human beings. We face a lot of pressure. We face a lot of obstacles when it comes to a complete understanding of God's Word. So there are going to be parts of Scripture that get debated. And can I say, that's better than ignoring it. It's better to get into a discussion, not an argument, not a fight, but a discussion about the things of God. It's better than ignoring. So let's get into what we started talking about. Let me quickly set the stage by continue, continuing to read out of Luke chapter 18, this time starting at verse 2. There was in a city a judge, which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Weary me. Once again, the purpose of this parable, according to Luke, and of course the Holy Spirit, the purpose of this parable is to teach two important lessons. That men ought always to pray, that's number one, in order, not precedence. That men ought always to pray, and number two, not to faint. Now, it's true, these two lessons are distinct, 
but they're also related. We'll see that later on. So let's dive in. By the way, for those of you that are students of classic evangelical teaching, you may recognize the details that we're discussing this morning. The 12th century French scholar and philosopher Bernard de Chartres is credited with one of history's greatest truisms. He said that we were, quote, dwarves standing on the shoulders of giants. In this ministry, I rely on the work of the great master preachers, teachers, and Christian scholars of the past. Today's lesson is based on a sermon that was once preached by one of the greatest Christian minds of all time, the incomparable G. Campbell Morgan. As usual, you know, I like to give credit where credit is due. So back to Luke 18. And he spoke a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. We'll explain the parable as we go along, but I want to take a look at point number one, that men ought always to pray. Now, we look at this statement, men ought always to pray, and we initially become quite alarmed at what it's saying. By the way, ladies, this wasn't meant to exclude you, not even on Mother's Day. You're on the hook for this as well. In fact, the earliest manuscripts actually say the much more inclusive, they ought always to pray. They ought always to pray. They ought always to pray. Now, for most of us that take Scripture seriously, we see the enormity of that statement. You see, we want to do everything Christ has told us to do. You and I have patterned our lives on this declaration from Jesus himself. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. What a mighty statement. Jesus said, if you keep my words, if you have my commandments, if you keep them, that means you love me. There's nothing wrong with fearing God, but there's also the component of love. Some may argue there's a blend between the two. When you think of fear being respect rather than cowering or shivering in fright. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about. When you love someone, what they say is important to you. We love Jesus, and we want to show him that we love him by doing as he says, but this is a big one. Men, they ought always to pray? Now, the temptation, of course, because this is so enormous, because this seems so impossible, we may think, well, Luke must have gotten that wrong. We may say, well, we could probably extract that statement from the Bible, because that sounds so impossible. That's the temptation. That has caused the downfall of so many great ministries, so many great denominations, so many movements for God, because someone had the arrogance to say, well, that doesn't really belong. We can't do that. It's God's word. If we start, if we chop this out, what's next? So that's not even open for discussion. Luke didn't get this wrong. Well, okay, 
Maybe the translation is wrong. Maybe we are not properly processing the Holy Spirit's thought pattern as he gave it to Luke. Maybe that's the problem. Yeah, let's blame the King James translators. They must have gotten this wrong. So let's pursue that angle. Remember, the the point we're trying to make is that this is a very large request. No, I take that back. It's a large commandment. Men ought always to pray. We must be getting that wrong. It's too big. So let's go behind the English and go straight to the Greek. The Gospel of Luke was originally written in Greek. In fact, beautiful Greek, they tell us. Scholars of the language tell us that far and above all of the other New Testament writers, Luke was a beautiful writer in the Greek. He made great use of classical Greek. It was written beautifully. Those that read it originally must have thought, oh, this is wonderful. So let's go to the Greek and see if maybe the King James translators just sort of put in their own idea there. Let's find out. The word that gets translated into the English word always is pentote. And the way that we normally break these Greek words down is we go to one of the, or sometimes several, of the well-accepted Greek dictionaries that are commonly used in seminaries and Bible colleges. I have access to those. We can look in one or more of those Greek dictionaries to see exactly what the word pentote means. So let's try the complete word study dictionary, a very, as I said, well-respected academic resource. The complete word study dictionary, by the way, has a very short definition for the Greek word pentote. The complete word study dictionary defines pentote as an adverb of time, meaning always, at all times, ever. Well, that seems pretty definite. It's brief and to the point. It appears that this definition of pantote from the Complete Word Study Dictionary supports the translation in the King James. Ever sounds pretty always-like. All right, looks like we're in a bit of a box here. If we're going to try to disprove the translation, let's try something else. Let's Look at how this word pentote is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Maybe that will give us a clue. Maybe that will tell us this is not really what it's saying. Remember, we're viewing the enormity of this commandment. We're trying to wriggle out of this if we can. Well, according to the King James Concordance, and the concordance is a resource that you use to see how a word in any language, in this case it's Greek, but how the words, Greek words are used throughout the rest of the New Testament. We're looking to see how the Greek word pentote is used throughout the rest of the Bible. Well, in 30 of the 38 occurrences of the word pentote, it's actually translated into this very same English word, always, 30 out of 38 times. Six of the remaining eight, it's translated into the English word ever, and then the remaining two translated into the English word evermore. We are having no success trying to disprove this translation. Seems to me, so far, it's correct. One last thing we can do. One last thing we can do to disprove the King James translation of Luke 18.1, which says men or they ought always to pray. We can look at the synonyms of the word pentote. 
like English, Greek words have synonyms. You know what a synonym is, right? A synonym is a word of the same language that has a meaning that's considered the same or nearly the same as an, another word. In English, for instance, we have happiness and joy. Those words are synonyms. We have attractive and appealing. Those words are synonyms, two words that mean the same thing. So knowing the synonyms of a word is a handy way to fully understand the meaning of a word. And again, what we're doing here is actually very common in the world of translation. What you try to do when you're translating stuff, if you want it to translate as closely to the original as, as you can. You do all of these things that we've done. You refer to academic dictionaries. You refer to how the word is used elsewhere in the language. And you do something like this where you find the synonyms that are listed for that word. Sometimes synonyms will help you to understand the full meaning of a particular word. So we're going to look to see what the synonyms are of pentote. And as it turns out, the complete word study dictionary, the very same, same dictionary that we used to define this word pentote, it actually has a list of synonyms there for us. Synonyms for the word pentote, those synonyms will help us to fully understand what pentote means. We're trying to make sure that the commandment to always to pray is accurate. And so far, looks pretty good. We got this one last thing to check out. Now, forgive me as I slaughter the pronunciations of some of these words. I've repeatedly warned you that I'm not an expert in the Greek language. I just happen to have some really good books. So you're going to have to take what you can get. There is listed in the complete word study dictionary as a synonym, the Greek word aai. Aai means, get this, perpetually or ever. Listed there also as a synonym for pentote is hekastote. Hekastote means always, each time. So far, not helping us. These are words that linguists consider to be synonyms of our word pentote. What about dia diapantos? Diapantos. That's listed as a synonym. What does diapantos mean? Well, that word is defined as through all time. This is not working. One more. Die nikes. Die nikes. Listed as a synonym for pantote. Well, dia nikes. Die nikes. That word means continuous forever. All I can tell you is there's very little doubt. There's no doubt. Men ought always to pray. That is a solid translation. There is a solid foundation of support for this translation by the King James translators. It's important that we do this because we take this seriously. We take God's word seriously. We take his word seriously. We want to please him. We want to show him that we love him. That's why we go through this. We are to be in continuous prayer. Now, this word ought, men ought always to pray, is actually a command. It's not a suggestion. Now, so startling is this commandment, because I, I guarantee you, the experts have gone through the same process you and I did. So startling is this command that the experts down through the ages have actually tried to explain downward what's meant here. I mean, they believe like we do. This is, couldn't possibly mean this always. Some have said that what Luke meant to say was that we should be men and women with a good, solid, well, I don't know, habit of prayer. Maybe that's what it means, that we should never miss an opportunity to pray. 
we should be ever ready to offer up prayer to the point that it only appears that we are always praying. Well, that sounds good, I guess. That might make us feel better about Luke 18.1 if we kind of close one eye or we squint our eyes a little bit, I suppose. But Luke 18.1, by the way, is not the only place in Scripture that we're given this sort of directive. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. Same thing, pray without ceasing. And once again, we Paul wrote this letter. We're thinking Paul is instructing something beyond our capability. Now, by the way, I'm going to warn you. If you've already started listening to this lesson, don't stop. Continue to listen all the way to the end. This may sound tedious, and I apologize. No, I don't apologize for that. The tediousness is purposeful. I want you to get this drilled into your head. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Luke says that Jesus intended for us to always pray. I, I know this is getting uncomfortable, but don't leave now. While there may be some confusion and or doubt, I think it will be cleared up if you hang with me. Now, those of you that are still here, sharpen your focus. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. Pray without ceasing sounds exactly the same as men ought always to pray, which is, as I said, found in Luke. And here again, we think this just can't be right. Yes, let's pray a couple times a day. We should be faithful in our prayer times. We should set aside time to pray, but without ceasing? Now, how could we possibly do that? Now, as an example of what I said earlier about the experts, let's listen to what the great John Gill said about this verse. John Gill is a classic biblical commentator. Listen to what he says. He says, quote, The meaning is that believers should be daily and often found in the performance of this duty. Unquote. Now, as you heard me say at the beginning of this lesson, I rely on these great Bible experts. I lean heavily on their opinion. We use John Gill's commentary quite a bit in our lessons, but I humbly say he's got it wrong. John Gill even tried to quote the Ethiopic translation, the translation in the Ethiopic language. In order to support his statement, he says the Ethiopic renders this verse, pray frequently. I'm sorry, but that is an incorrect translation. We've seen that. Let's again, for clarity's sake, take a quick look at the original Greek. This time we're looking at the original Greek of 1 Thessalonians. Remember, 1 Thessalonians is translated pray without ceasing. Now, the two-word phrase without ceasing is translating the Greek word adial, adialiptos, adialiptos, adialiptos. That's the Greek word originally, the Greek word that gets translated by the King James translators without ceasing. Now, Strong's Hebrew, and this is kind of a, today's lesson is a little bit of a contrast to what we've had recently. This is a much more academic, much more focused lesson. Your Bible students today. So the Strong's Hebrew and Greek dictionary defines this very difficult to pronounce word, adialiptos. They define that word to mean, listen to this, uninterruptedly, that is, without omission. That's what adialiptos means. Now, how one can translate 
adialyptos to the word frequently, I don't understand. As stated above, Ethiopic translation, as referenced by John Gill in his commentary, says that 1 Thessalonians 5.17 should read, Pray frequently. Adialyptos doesn't mean frequently. It means uninterruptedly. Frequent means often. Often infers interruptions. Uninterruptedly means no interruptions. Means nonstop. Without stopping. Now it also means always. That's what adialyptos means. It means always, without interruption, without omission, without ceasing. I'm certain that almost everyone that reads this command, myself included, and we've said this several times through this lesson, we immediately think that is simply impossible. No one can pray always. We have other stuff to do. So how do we handle this? Well, as I always tell you, that when we're faced with a seemingly ambiguous or even contradictory thought in God's Word, we must trust. Remember, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Truth by Jesus, and He was given to us to help us to understand. That's where we go when we are having a struggle with understanding. Listen, God is aware of what we're capable of, much more aware than we are, as a matter of fact. God knows our limitations. Would God set us up for failure knowing our limitations? Listen, He knows what we're capable of. He's painfully aware of our limitations. In fact, it was His awareness of our limitations that had Him send His Son to the cross. Because we are limited, because we are finite, God said they can't do certain things. And I can't make them do certain things. I must make up for some of the things that I require that they cannot do. Therefore, God sent His Son to the cross. Therefore, when faced with what appears to be impossible commands from God, we must trust that God knows what He's asking. God knows what we're capable of, and God would not command an impossibility. I trust that. So we must say, then, what's going on here? We feel this pray always, pray without ceasing, men ought always to pray sounds impossible to us. We already looked at the word always. The word always means always. But that's not the only word there. Is it possible? That prayer is something different than we have heretofore imagined it to be? Is prayer the pivot point here? Because always is uncompromising. We know that. You cannot compromise with the word always. Is it prayer that we don't fully understand? Listen to G. Campbell Morgan. He says, quote, the inspired meaning of the master's parable, that's in Luke 18, the inspired meaning of the master's parable lifts the whole subject of prayer to a very high level and reveals to us the fact that there is 
infinitely more in prayer, listen to this, everybody, than the offering of pettits, that means small little requests, than the uttering of words, than the taking of time, than the attitude of body or of the mind, that there are deeper depths and higher heights And that if we would enter into the prayer life with all its fullness of virtue and of victory, we must discover what this really means, that they ought always to pray, pray without ceasing, unquote. Now, I'll take it one step further than dear Dr. Morgan. We must discover the true meaning of prayer if we have any chance for obeying these commands. We have to look harder at the concept of prayer. What is it? We know what always is. We know what without ceasing is. What is prayer? I mean, it's more than just discovering the fullness of virtue and victory of prayer life, as Dr. Morgan says. We need to answer this question in order to do as we're told. We owe it to God to embark on this journey of discovery. Now, we're going over this to give us all an idea of why Jesus told that parable whose purpose was to instruct us to pray always. And we'll get to that parable a little later, but I want you to realize, like everything else, this wasn't just some random thought that Jesus had. Hey, guys, I was just thinking, men ought always to pray. He has a reason for everything that he says. You know, he knew his time was limited. This was an infinite being that was now faced with time. And he knew that he could not waste a single moment of time because he, hadn't, he did not have infinity anymore. He could not be trifling and petty. So everything that he said was important. Everything that he said in time would affect eternity. Rest assured, Jesus wasted no time. And that includes when he told that parable, whose purpose was to instruct us to pray pray always. Jesus told us this for a reason. Now, let me just say, the life of a disciple, the life of a Christian is tough. I've said that so many times to you. Most of you would agree wholeheartedly. You'd give me an amen, brother. The life of a Christian is difficult. It would be great if we could just follow some list of rules and get it over with. But it doesn't work that way. That's not what we're called to. Living the proper life of a Christian is one of faith and trust and obedience. Living the proper life of a Christian under those circumstances, has the effect of placing a tremendous amount of pressure, a tremendous amount of stress and strain on the believer every moment of the time. You don't think Jesus knows that? In fact, this man felt that stress and strain so much so that at one point in his life, we're told that his sweat was as great drops of blood. Jesus knows the stress of being you. Now, I don't think you'll ever be as stressed as Jesus, but nonetheless, Jesus knows what you're going through. I used to had this little bookmark on my internet browser that would link to a live view from the Alaskan wilderness. And sometimes I'd check in on that live cam and I'd see this raging stream with salmon 
jumping out of it. At one point in my life, I was a great, I enjoyed fishing. Fishing. I used to fish for salmon myself. It's fascinating. Those poor salmon, though. You talk about stress and strain. You know that every year salmon have to swim against an immense current to get where they know they need to be. And sometimes along the way, huge boulders block their progress. And somehow they know that the only way that they can continue is if they gather up all of their strength and leap over that boulder. Only to stare face to fin with a giant grizzly that wants to eat them. And you know, there have been days when I stared at that webcam and the scene unfolding in front of me, and I thought, man, I can relate to those salmon. Maybe that's why I don't like the fish anymore. I understand the stress of swimming against a current and trying to leap over the boulders only to face more danger that is going to destroy me. And I suspect you probably could too. The life we've chosen isn't a walk in the park. There are dangers and frustrations and setbacks and pain almost around every corner. To overcome, we need a very dramatic and very powerful countermeasure. No wonder Jesus took the time to teach a parable whose aim it was to teach us that men ought always to pray. The only way we can have hope to have any success is to have an all-the-time connection with the Almighty, the kind which prayer gives us. Jesus knows, as much as you do, that the difficulties of this life cannot be faced alone. We may want to face it alone. We may want to prove that we can do it alone, but we can't. Not one single moment of the life you've chosen can be handled without God's help. You cannot sleep you cannot turn away from your connection to God if you want to be safe. Let's turn back to the parable that Luke says teaches us this vital lesson. We'll read it again. It's short. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him? Now, most commentators will say that this parable is insisting that the only way to get God's attention is to be a pest. The prevailing opinion among the experts is that Jesus was saying that God is like the judge. And that you and I have to keep on him. And then eventually, out of sheer weariness, he'll relent and give us what we ask for. Now, 
I will admit that it's not difficult to see how that opinion becomes the prevailing opinion, how it gets formulated. But here is an opportunity to repeat a very important principle concerning the study of God's Word. You cannot take a verse or a passage of Scripture out of the context of the whole Bible. That's why I tell you, that's why this program exists. It's important for you to study God's entire Word. So let's look at this for a moment. Verse 6, Jesus calls the city judge unjust. In the Greek, it's literally translated the judge of injustice. Now, can you imagine Jesus comparing his father to a judge of injustice? Of course not. What we have to do is remember that there are actually two types of parables that Jesus used. There were the parables of comparison and the parables of contrast. Sometimes the parables of Jesus were meant to give a picture of what the things of God were like, but there were also parables that Jesus gave that were meant to give a picture of the things of God that, that the way of, of God are not like. Does that make sense? I know I fumbled on that for a second. Let's try it again. Sometimes Jesus' parables were meant to give a picture of what the things of God are like. And sometimes Jesus' parables were meant to give a picture of what the things of God are not like. This is a parable not of comparison. The parable of the unjust judge is not a parable of comparison. It is a parable of contrast. Have you ever been at the checkout counter in your local grocery store and noticed that on both sides there's row upon row of candy and chocolate and toys and everything children like sitting right there in front of you? It's sinful, smart, but sinful. Invariably, whenever I'm standing in line to buy a fifth of Jack Daniels and a carton of, of camels, oh, I'm sorry, I meant milk and eggs, there's some overindulged four-year-old shouting, Mommy, can I have this? 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 It's annoying, isn't it? You've been there. You've heard it yourself. Maybe you've experienced it yourself. What usually happens? Mommy gives in. She's tired of the whining. Do we really think that's how Jesus sees God? Do you really think that Jesus wants you to think that's what God's nature is like? Do you really think that Jesus wants you to believe that you and God can only engage in a pastoring relationship if you happen to want some success out of all this? God's not sitting there ignoring you to the point that the two of you get frustrated. Verses 7 and 8 have our answer to this. And shall not God avenge his own elect? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Well, this doesn't change the fact that we ought always to pray. We must pray unceasingly. But maybe we're looking at it wrong. Now, with all this background, we can only come to this conclusion. We're back to the point that we were a moment ago. We must look at what this idea of prayer actually is. 
Well, the original Greek word that gets translated into our English word pray is prosukomai. It's made up, as very often Greek words are, of two other Greek words. It is made up of the Greek word pros, which means forward to, and eukomai, which means wish. Now, let's turn back to G. Campbell Morgan for a moment. He says that when looking at the original meaning of this word pray, the one we just broke down in Greek, he says, quote, if you take it as to its first simplicity and intention, it means to wish forward, to desire toward the ultimate. So Dr. Morgan is suggesting that this means something higher. And as a proof text, he quotes Paul's letter to the Colossians. Let's read that, verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Isn't that simply looking forward? If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. That's looking forward. Seeking the things above is looking forward. And it shouldn't be done with a woeful, sighing, longing, sad, sucking, sack, kind of puppy dog eyes gaze. We shouldn't be, that's not looking forward. It's an attitude. When we're fixed on the things of above, when we are seeking the things above, when we're praying at its most basic, it means our mindset is upward. We live our lives with an upward look. We live our lives as if this isn't our home. We live our lives as if we're always hoping for, striving for, looking forward to the ultimate, knowing this is not the ultimate. To us, the ultimate is when this creation is returned to the one who created it. We know it is not in his hands yet. If you don't believe that, pick up a newspaper. But we must always be looking forward to that. We must always be thinking that way. Always. Most of us have been in love before. Some of us are in love now. Was there ever a moment when the love ceased? If you're in love now, has there been a moment when the love ceased? I'm not saying didn't feel so good. When you're truly in love, it doesn't cease. You may not feel it, but you know it. When we look at prayer that way, when we look at prayer as a look upward, as a hope for. We know it can be without ceasing. Sure, we're not using words. Sure, we're not down on our knees. We're not listing the people we love and we ask for their healing or for their restoration or their salvation. Sure, we may not be outwardly saying that, but we are looking upwards. We're always hoping for them. We're always hoping for God's creation. We're always hoping for good things. That doesn't cease. That doesn't sound so impossible. I've told you before, this is the secret to getting prayers answered. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done. When your focus is on that which pleases Him, God takes notice. And the message has always been the same. 
God's full word tells us this, New and Old Testament. Psalm 37, 4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Too many people miss out on God's involvement in their lives because they neglect the first part of these verses. In order to have things work out properly, the prerequisite is a life centered on Him. God is not going to involve Himself in your life if, not, if your entire life is not involved in Him. God will not allow anything that is not of Him to come true. It's just not going to happen. His words must abide in you and you delight in Him. Otherwise, He's not going to pay attention. Well, what does that have to do with this ought always to pray business? We'll look at the passage from John for a moment. Do you see there that Jesus said that His words must abide in you? The Greek word is meno. It means to remain in place permanently. It means to be held or kept continually. You know what permanently and continually mean, don't you? Mean, don't you? They mean always. They mean without ceasing. When someone or something abides in the Greek meno sense, that abiding is constant. And isn't that the simple meaning of prayer? I mean, the words of Jesus aren't being constantly repeated in your mind. You don't hear his words repeating constantly. It's the sense of of his words, the meaning of what he said, the heart, if you will, of what Jesus said that should abide in you permanently. And when that happens, God is then free to come in your life and continually work with you in perpetuity. When we are constantly permanently, continually, unceasingly fixed on things forward, as G. Campbell Morgan describes the things of God, we are in its simplest sense in prayer. Let's read those two verses again and tell me where you see the word pray. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. This isn't a spoken prayer. This is an attitude. This is a thought pattern. This is you gazing forward. These two verses look like prosukomai, looking forward. Wishing forward for the things of God. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you permanently, ye shall ask what ye will and it will be done unto you. When you delight yourself in the Lord, he gives thee the desires of thine heart. When your warp and woof, as the old pastors say, when the tenor of your life is in concordance with God, he will work himself out through you. And boy, you can be useful to him under those circumstances. And when you delight in him and he's abiding in you, isn't that perpetual joy? Isn't that unceasing joy? You thinking about him and he thinking of you? Sounds like love, doesn't it? I all of a sudden think I can do this. Always praying, men ought always to pray, doesn't sound so impossible anymore. 
I want his glory. When all is said and done, and I mean that. I know you mean that too. We don't care about ourselves. We care about him. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. Listen, I'm fully aware of my own inabilities in this ministry. You're not here because of me. You couldn't be. I'm as flawed a preacher as a man could be. You're here because you love him. Face it. You love him. You want to get to know him. You are delighting yourself in him. You're always praying in its most simplest form. Listen, the more I study his word, the more I take time to communicate with him, the more amazed I am about him. That's why I hate critics. They take no time to study him, and yet they criticize. I'll say it for the millionth time. There would be no such thing as critics if they spent more time studying that which they criticize. As I study God's Word, my amazement of Him grows, my love for Him grows, and my upward look is sustained. All along, maybe I have been praying continuously. At least I'm getting there. Once God is revealing himself to me, I'm convinced as that continues to grow, my every thought will be on him. I won't be able to help it. I think I can achieve the always praying state. But you know what? We're not done. Let's read Luke 18, 1 again, and he spoke, a, he spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. How did that get by me? There's always a catch. Not only do I have to pray always, but now I can't faint. It's one of my favorite things to do. Well, one thing that I take great comfort in is that Jesus knows how tough this life is. He's walked this road before. I know I'm repeating myself. It's important to this lesson. It's important for you to understand that Jesus never commands anything that he's not willing to do himself, ever. Paul says that Jesus understands our weaknesses, which, by the way, is what this word fainting actually means. We aren't talking about, you know, swooning and passing out. We're talking about becoming so exhausted by our circumstances that we're weakened. Jesus, according to Paul, knows your weaknesses, the moments that make you want to faint in the old English use of that word. Jesus knows the temptations of fainting. He had to. But then Jesus tells us not to faint. Now, all of a sudden, not fainting seems as impossible as praying always once felt. But maybe they're related. Let's read it again. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, since Jesus took the time to share that parable with us to teach us this above lesson, we have to say that this is Jesus' philosophy for life. As he always does, he lays out things in the simplest of terms. He says, life is about praying and not fainting. Praying and not fainting. You know what that sounds like? Faith. Let's see if we can put it another way. Jesus says, life is either looking up or looking down, right? We said that the all the time praying is the upward look. And we know 
that when we're weak, what do we do? Our heads drop. What is it that we always tell everyone to encourage and strengthen each other? We say, chin up. When we chin up, we move our head up because our head is down when we're weak. When we're weak, our chins, and by physical connection, our heads are down. So Jesus says, your choice in life is head up or head down, praying or fainting. Again, with God, there's no middle ground. There's no midway between praying and fainting. There's no middle ground between head up or head down. If you're fainting, you're not praying. Now, I'm driving this home because I want you to understand the simplicity of the gospel as written in this nine-word phrase. Men or they ought always to pray and not to faint. It's the story of faith. The teaching of Jesus is faith. If you're near fainting, if you're weakened by your circumstances, stop what you're doing and pray. Doesn't have to be with words, doesn't have to be on your knees. It just has to do with your outlook, your attitude, your beliefs. I'm broke. I'm about to lose my house. I'm in despair. I'm fainting. Wait. I know God loves me. I know he's promised to provide for me. Chin up. Hold on in faith when the weakness comes. The doctor says I have cancer. What am I going to do? My family. They need me. Wait. God says, I'm the Lord that healeth thee. I'm the one that strengthens you. Chin up. I'm counting on God to provide for me. I'm counting on God to heal me. I'm counting on God to make things right because that's his promise. Head up. Praying and not fainting. Not the way some have suggested. Keep bothering God with your requests like that widow in the parable. By the way, I love that God actually constantly uses the image of a widow when he's characterizing our situation. I've told you many, many times, being husbandless in ancient times was as desperate a situation as you could ever be in. A widow was without support, without help, without hope. That's a clear picture of you and me without Jesus. That's why there's no middle ground. You're either praying or fainting. Anyhow, this parable of contrast, as we called it earlier, is telling us that if we're always in the state of prayer, there's no need for importunity as the theologians call it. There's no need to repeat our petitions over and over because our minds are focused on the things of God. Now, is it a sin to constantly repeat my prayer? I don't think so. Some have suggested that. I don't think so. I think that the physical act of praying sometimes makes us feel better. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think it's necessary, but Go ahead if that helps you to focus on God's presence and abilities. State your need to God. Leave it with Him. Live your life with the upward look, the Godward look, the faithful look, and He will bring it to pass. Live your life by praying and not fainting. Or put another way, live your life by faith. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in His plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially 
For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.